0: I would invite you to think back to the first chapter. Remember, we talked—we've talked before about how, in the first chapter, verse uh, eight, Jesus gives us an outline for the Book of Acts. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And Judea. Okay, so imagine this might be what a first-century Jew, how they would have heard this. You should be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem. Oh, great, let's go. And in Judea, good idea. We have family in Judea.
1: and Samaria
0: Samaria we don't talk much of those half-breeds and even the remotest part of the earth now wait just a minute there are Gentiles out there (laughs) we have here uh, a third um, tension that arises you remember a quick history here uh, early on there was this this Disappointment in the way that the the, uh, the Greek-speaking widows were being served. And uh, that was a bit of a conflict, and the apostles managed it very well. Then comes along the introduction of Cornelius, chapter 10. And that was a conflict, and Peter (coughs) explained the whole story. And remember, Leland talked to us, emphasized how that story is repeated two or three times. There must be something there that was pretty significant. So I think people began to think, okay, it's okay to let Gentiles be followers of Christ. It's okay to let them be Christians. But another inevitable conflict, some It's okay to let them in as Christians, but do they have to adapt? To, do they have to become us before they can become we? So Paul and Barnabas are having great, great success in their mission work, and they're sent to Jerusalem to pose the question. What about this? And so, there's great debate. Page 88, if you're following on in your journal book, it's at chapter 15. I'm going to start with Peter's speech here. Page 88 at top of it. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and the And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. and then Paul and Barnabas talk about their experiences. James will make a comment here. But that's mainly the, the, the message of the sermon that uh, I want to spend some time on today, and I'll let Leland in the middle, second half of our class uh, talk to us about maybe some content. But uh, these folks were faced with a dilemma. Uh, I know of two, at least two in this room, who happen to be the first child in their family. And if we could push rewind, and go there, I bet those little duffers thought, life is great, life is good. I have two adults that exist because they serve me. Everything everything is wonderful. Everything is wonderful. And then a brother or sister comes along and
2: ruins everything. Now I've got got to be nice to them. So they are kind of nice, they entertain me a bit, but
0: I have to learn to share with them. grab her, come. Okay? Well, I can tell that story because I'm the one that came along and made a partner for my older sister. I'm the second child. And uh, I don't suppose she appreciated me hanging around much. Well, that's sort of, maybe, this may be a try example. But that's sort of what these folks might be feeling. So we have these conflicts. Um, and there are some things about conflicts I'd like to talk about today. Some popular myths. Uh, first, I would say... Uh, it's a myth that says conflict is attractive and should be avoided. Notice the elders um, with the women that were being served uh, here, the apostles and uh, elders in Jerusalem, they didn't say, you know, let's just go silent on this. Maybe it'll solve itself. They were very proactive. They weren't afraid of the conflict. Conflict is attractive and should be avoided? I would say no. That's not necessarily true. Conflict isn't a 4 word. And also, conflict as a result of misunderstanding and can be resolved by sharing more information. I remember when my daughter was uh, idealistic, 16-year-old theology, some of you might be able to relate that. And she said, Dad, if you would just listen to me, you would agree. <laughs> and I would say to her, No, Jenny, I have listened to you that's why I disagree. Okay? Just because I disagree with you doesn't mean if you say it 18 more times, a little louder each time. I'm going to agree with you. <coughs> conflict cannot be resolved. Well, that's a good phrase. I don't think conflict can be resolved. Conflict cannot be managed just because we say it a little louder. Okay? And then third, conflict is a sign of a poor relationship. I'd say that's a big no. I tell my students that you know it's a big knot. My wife and I have been married 48 years, okay, and there are things she and I disagree on. Another 48 years, she'll still be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, remember, I called you. Remember, us. I called you money last week. You so. <laughs> but I believe that conflict is not a sign. It's not a sign of bad relationship, If anything, it's sign. <clears throat> Because if Debbie and I conflict on something, uh, it means it matters. It means something to us. And when we can manage that and adapt to that, that's where closeness, that's where intimacy comes from. And so conflict doesn't have to be avoided. It's a, it's a, it can be a good thing. Some of the things, some of the benefits are it increases involvement. It lets the other people know in this conflict, this matters. To this. I'm involved in this. This really matters, and uh, this is important to me, right? And then the second is may seem odd, but it promotes cohesion. Uh, remember the phrase: "The family that prays together stays together." Yeah. Maybe another way to say it is: "Family that fights together stays." Together. If it's important enough for us to express conflict, we show this matters to us. And it's like when a team there, you might remember a scene from, uh, I forget what the title, Clash of the Titans or Fight of the Titans, or what is it, where Denzel Washington is a football coach. Oh, I'll remember the Titans. I think <laughs> you did it right, was that it? I didn't remember, remember. <laughs> there was a time when two of the, uh, it, was, it was a conflict between a merged school. One school was black, one school was white, And they were merged, and he was the head coach of the football team. And the biggest, baddest guy from the black team was having a fight with the biggest, baddest guy from the white team. And each of their lieutenants and followers were wrapped around them, and they were cheering one, And they were duking it out. And Denzel Washington finds out about it. And he goes over and does nothing. And they beat the pulp out of each other. <laughs> and this half of the crowd realized, well, that guy has some strengths. And this half of the crowd realized, that guy has some strengths. They used to be enemies. Until that fight, they were opponents. And now they're more cohesive. Now they're a team. I went to a, a cross-country meet the other day, yesterday. And, um, the first race was a good one, so I'll tell you about that. Like 120 gals running, 12 universities. Ten from each university. The first five across the finish line, and the girls, and the, the women's rush country meeting were all Lutheran students. So they did very well, right? But they ran together, and the person said, opponents, yet friends, and teammates. I just thought that was so cool. It, Actually, if I'm willing to fuss with you about it, it matters to me, and it'll promote cohesion. Third, it increases productivity. We're gonna get more done. I can realize where your interests are, and where your strengths are, where my strengths are, and we get more done. In a a group context at work, I think we get more done when we realize here's an area where you can be strong, here's an area I can be strong. And because we've dealt with that tension we're more productive and increase our chance of commitment. It, it verifies to the other party that this matters to me. This is very important to me. So I tried to come up with a visual. Let's see if it works. We'll see if it works. I would say if the conflict is bigger than the relationship, Okay, if the conflict is more important, than the friendship or fellowship or relationship. Uh, somebody walks. Mm-hmm. You know, if if, if uh, Larry and I are in a conflict and the conflict means more than the relationship, he says, I'm not here. Right? So I would say if the conflict is bigger than the relationship, the relationship stops. However, there's good news. If the relationship is greater than the conflict, we have fellowship. And I think that's what maybe James and the other were thinking. And Leland and I were talking this week, and maybe he'll have time to talk to us about, we commented, we were talking about what James said, and there's a reference to the Old Testament, we didn't talk about But um, I think James was saying, look, a relationship in Christ is more important than this of and we are not going to let this bus break us apart. If they would have made the wrong decision, the whole path of the church would have been shut down, completely changed. They did make the wrong decision. They weren't afraid. <clears throat> the last few days, there's been a quote floating around of Creek circles from 1923, 100 years ago. And I thought I would end with this. Let me. Uh, share this with you. Elijah Sewell was a Bible teacher at uh, <coughs> the Bible College, or the pre- preacher school that became uh, National mm-hmm. Bible Institute. Yeah. Okay. He was also an elder in one of the churches. We tell others that we can all see the Bible alike. The trouble is, we differ, not on what it says, but on the inferences we draw therefrom. Yet while preaching this truth to others, we are continually offering, differing among ourselves, not on what the Bible says, but on the inferences we draw therefrom. (coughs) We draw inferences concerning Bible colleges, Second Coming Christ, Bible school material, (laughs) Invisacuni Cups. Uh, We could add uh, worship wars, uh, children's homes, Christian college. Okay, And numerous other things. In the interest of discussing these matters in the spirit of love and forbearance, we accuse each other of disloyalty to the book. And we want to withdraw fellowship from one another. So we go down the street and start another congregation, I guess. The remedy for this, and the only one, is to change our emphasis from that of the loyalty of the cause, meaning our plea, and loyalty to Christ, to loyalty to Christ. More love to him will mean more love for each other. Love is the great principle of unity. It succeeds where others fail, and without it, all others must and will fail. And I I look at this and I think, this is a great example of how people manage conflict, Do they resolve it. No, I'm not sure you can ever really resolve conflict. But when I know that someone has a different view, and yet I love them, uh, the relationship is even stronger. I think that is the benefit of what came out of uh, Acts 15. So we've got a few minutes of my share, and if, if you have some things you'd like to add here, that'd be great. If not, we'll move it to Leland. I've got about four minutes left, I think. I've got a timer set, so <laughs> I will take all this time, and it will go off at least in my hearing aid. I'm not sure it will go off in your hearing, aid. In hearing aid, but in my hearing aid, it'll go off. So, uh, thoughts, questions? Maybe this uh, uh, you could add to this for us.
1: Well, can I appreciate you talking about conflict because that's something we don't usually talk much about uh, and how to uh, work through that or manage it Uh, I think uh, your comments were very good I
0: would encourage people how many many broken hearts are there?
1: Leland and I I I just read a book on the history of uh, Leland help me with the title of the book was it meet me at the blue hole
2: no, just at the Blue
1: Hole. At the Blue Hole. Hole, and it was just a fascinating book on how they uh, tried to, uh, based on the on the unity in Christ, how they were trying to resolve the differences between the churches of Christ, the disciples of Christ, and the Christian Church. It was fascinating for Amen. me to read, and I didn't know a lot of the history. Yes. I knew some of it, but I think it speaks to this, uh, trying to be the person that extends love and being the peacemaker instead of the one that you know, we're trying to You know, we have some our
0: friends in Michigan who, she grew up in the one cup mm-hmm. group of our fellowship and every time her mom and dad would visit uh, the church we were part of, they would pass straight, something like we do here. But on that day, when she was with her parents, she would grab one tiny little cup. She'd take a tiny list of it and then would each take one more time. So, Flable Yakely, I, I talked to her Wednesday class about this, and Flable Yakely used to tell a story of the church. Two congregations emerged. One was a multi-cup uh, uh, green church, and another was one cup. And what they did is they took the communion tray, the juice tray, and bored a big hole in the middle of it. And there was one bigger cup in the middle. (laughs) And they were able to pass it. And if Leland is a one cup guy, he grabs the one cup. If I'm not a one cup guy, I grab the little cup and work together. And he said that was such a neat image. And he said they took that communion tray and put it in kind of a trophy case in the lobby as evidence of. The unity we wow. That's so cool. How many churches have broken broken? apart? they are fussed over something. This is a good model. Acts 15 is a good model. We don't have the wisdom of the apostles. We don't have the miraculous ability of the apostles. But uh, uh, what a great great example. Other thoughts? Thank you. I think what we have to reach, <laughs> when we
1: reach these these points of conflict we really need to bore down or remind ourselves what is non negotiable. And uh it's really right. I I I uh, don't wanna get into what is non negotiable. Sure. There's only one or two yeah.
0: actually. Well when Josh mentioned a couple men made me about it today yeah. with the church, you know. Those are the non-negotiables. Yeah. There's a whole lot that's uh, do you hear that? I hear that. I hear that. Yeah. Okay, I
2: better Thank you. Well, <laughs> well thank you. I did. That was helpful to me. Um, for those visiting, it, we've been using, some of us have been using this Bible journal for the book of Acts. This is just the book of Acts. With a page and the scripture page, and there, there's some of them sitting up here that I'm, I'm trying to get rid of. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're about halfway through the um, semester oh, oh. or so, and uh, stack is
0: declining. <laughs> well, I I've got more at
2: okay. home. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a few more. Okay. okay. But uh, anyhow, thank you. That was good. So, in looking at speeches and sermons in in Acts, as Kent says, we're in chapter 15 of Acts. And uh, I guess one of the things that I would uh, mention for you to look at, and and we're going to go ahead and and look at what James says and does, uh, in the, in the latter part of the uh, circumstances here. Uh, how many times Peter talks about what God is doing, what God has done, what God's spirit, I mean, I think he sort of interchanges those two. Um, Peter's, of course, reminding that group of his... Um, Interactions with Cornelius and uh, when he had to come back to Jerusalem and defend his activities uh, Mm -hmm. just a few years before. You know, this part of Acts, we don't know the dating. I was telling Kent, I was reading one commentator this week, and he says this meeting in Jerusalem was 49 AD. Okay. So. (laughs) He, he gave no background or reason or how he dated it, but he just said it was in '49. Uh, uh, was also curiosity. In your background memory, what have you called this meeting? Jerusalem Council. Jerusalem Council, and that's that's my sort of memory as well. Acts 15, you know, the Jerusalem Council, this particular commentator, who happened to be Catholic, uh, a Catholic writer, said you know, this was not a council, with a capital C. Oh. Um, that there were councils later that might have been built on this, but this is not considered a council. Okay. Neither here nor there. Um, so... Peter gives a short speech, and then it says, Paul and Barnabas followed on, and and, as Kent said, the audience was silenced in verse 12. That sounds like the end of at least contentious discussion, I guess, The, the audience was silent. Paul and Barnabas talk about their experiences in Antioch and on their first journey which they had just come back from what we call the first missionary journey and how it says what signs and wonders God had done so again uh, among the Gentiles and then it says that James stood up To speak. This is verse 13. Yeah, this is we assume James, the brother of Jesus, James the apostle, the brother of John, son of Zebedee, uh, had been martyred uh, earlier, I don't know, a year or two earlier. So uh, we assume this is James. And beginning in verse 13, James replies, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, and he quotes from Amos, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. There's, I think, a little bit of a difference here in how Peter and James are approaching this conflict. Just the way I read it, um, Paul and Barnabas are coming to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles and the elders and the whole church, it says, and a group was bothering the Gentile Christians up in Antioch, they had come from Jerusalem, we don't have any note as to someone sending them, but they came at least from Jerusalem, With they were Pharisees by background, now believers, and they came up and told the Gentile Christians, well, The men have to be circumcised and you have to obey the law of Moses in order to be a Christian. I think Peter is saying, no. You don't. James is saying, no, but we need to be able to get along and this almost and i'll ask for your reaction this almost seems to me like sort of a compromise james is saying you he doesn't even mention circumcision so he's agreeing i guess with no you don't have to be circumcised no you don't have to fully Follow the law of Moses. But there's four things that will promote fellowship and promote cohesion between the, the two groups. Uh, abstaining from things polluted by idols, the ESD renders it so uh, not eating food, perhaps, Um, not participating in some sort of activities connected to idol worship. Sexual immorality, he uh, mentions as as a good thing that they should follow. From what has been strangled and from blood then the strangled part sort of goes against um, kosher regulations in that they wanted all of the blood to be out of the animal before it was cooked uh, or eaten and then blood itself there were some pagan <clears throat> temple rites whatever that involved drinking blood directly, so um, I don't have it right here in front of me, but apparently the Gentiles Christians were happy with this compromise. We, we don't, that I'm aware of, have any pushback Later on, you know, Paul says, you yeah, know, things offered to, to idols, it's neither good nor bad. Doesn't Idols aren't anything, so it, it doesn't matter. So it, it seems like later in, in early church history, maybe the, the meat offered to idols thing went away a bit. But, uh, so... Do you see this as a sort of as a compromise and, and a bit different from Peter saying no? You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow you know, the law of Moses as far as uh, all of special the special days, all the days, the days, the... the, days, the so you see him as doing this just to kind of resolve this
1: one situation?
2: I think a- so, yes. Okay. That, that um, This was a way that the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians could fellowship, could be in community together and, and not feel uncomfortable with each other seems like we always have uh, disagreements and uh, I even disagree with your date I read where it's 57. Well,
1: well. 50 well. <laughs> they call it 53.
2: Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> how um, the how the, rude. The how how <laughs> rude. <laughs> and I think that uh, if we were all Jews and writing and during this time how many of us would go along with you know i uh, i don't know what i would do I you kind of question you know we followed moses all along and now you're saying something else uh, we need to have about a year's series of talks on this and <laughs> you have provided me exactly the introduction that I need. <laughs> I read it.
1: Oh
0: my. No. i heard this story. The, this, this is good.
2: This is a little book. Not really a commentary. written by Tom Wright. Um, he's done all the books of the New Testament. And he takes it in sections and every section has a story. I, I mean, I don't know how preachers come up with a thousand <laughs> stories. But, but some of them are true. <laughs> but, but let me uh, this will take five or six minutes but I, I think this is a great story. So please listen. I'll try to read fast. It's about a woman named Mora Mora, M-O-I- R-A. Moira. Moira is the cellist in a string quartet. She comes originally from Germany where she was taught by a man who was taught by a man who had known Brahms personally, had played the Elgar concerto under the great man's baton, and in addition to substantial solo work, had performed in both quartets and orchestras around the world. Moira is, naturally, proud of this pedigree, and she does her best through study and assiduous practice to keep up her high standards. The public appreciate it. Often a cellist isn't the main star in a quartet, But though the violinist and the viola player are excellent, many people ask why they have come to the quartet's concert or bought the CD. (coughs) will name her playing as the main reason. She carries with her a gentle but clear sense of the noble tradition of European music. She seems to breathe the air of the great concert halls of Vienna Milan, Paris, and Berlin, as they used to be before the disastrous wars of the 20th century shook European culture to its foundations. So when the quartet plays Beethoven or Brahms or Mozart, there is always a sense that she provides not just the ground base for the music, but the solid, substantial sense of what the music is really all about. She can feel in her bones the way the themes, the subjects, the harmonies, and the rhythms flow this way and that, across the different movements and even between different quartets in the same set. She is, in short, a purist. And her colleagues and public value and love her as such. So imagine Maura's reaction a few weeks ago when the leader of the quartet, a brilliant but very young violinist, came to the group excitedly with the new contract proposal. A well-known radio station wants them to branch out. They will play their favorite movements, or even parts of movements, from their top 20 quartets of all time. They will play them on the radio, They will make recordings of their selections. They will have special pop quartet concerts in major venues. The radio station will splash advertising everywhere. There will be a phone-in so people can call and say which bits they like best, and then they can play them again, over and over. Tens of thousands of people who've never heard quartet music before will flood in It's a whole new market. They want it. We can do it. They will pay good money. And Moira is livid. How can they? How can they? Why don't they dress up in silly costumes and dance the can-can at the same time then? Why don't they hum old Bavarian folk songs while they're at it? What is this? a serious music outfit, or a three ring circus. You can't just rip movements out of a quartet. You might as well pull 20 lines out of a Shakespeare play and have someone stand up on stage and recite it as if that would make any sense. Or cut up the Mona Lisa and sell it in little squares as souvenirs. (laughs) Brahms would be turning in his grave. Someone has to make a stand. If only her teacher, or his teacher, could hear this nonsense. He put them right. If the general public want to understand what real music is all about, people should put on proper concerts instead of this, let them all come anyway, rubbish. Moira, bless her, is a Pharisee. Of course she is. She understands tradition. She knows that you can cut a tree down in 10 minutes, but you can't grow another one in 10 years. She knows that people have worked, slaved in poverty, struggled and even died in the effort to reach the very pinnacle of creative art. She knows that all around, there are people who are only too ready to add saxophones to 15th century ensembles, (laughs) to turn a noble symphonic theme into an advertising jingle. To pretend that the important thing about Mozart was his sex life. To psychoanalyze Brahms yet again. As though everyone didn't already know about his poor mother. And as though that would add one iota to the sheer heart-stopping beauty of his German requiem. She speaks up for the rock on which the whole Western musical tradition stands, before someone blows it to pieces to sell it off in bits, stamped with pictures of famous composers. Had Moira been in Jerusalem, faced with the news from Antioch, not to mention from Turkey, she would have been quite clear circumcision matters because Moses said so and that was a millennium and a half ago and anyway it was given to Abraham in the first place 2,000 years ago and people have died because of their determination to keep the laws and the customs this is our identifying mark as God's people it's a solemn sign of the covenant. It says so in the Bible. What will it be next? Pulling down the temple, telling us we should all keep pigs and eat pork. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah took up a lot of time. I. I just love that story. I mean, I, I in reading it, uh, in a lot of ways, I'm moral. Uh, it it uh, spoke to me personally, uh, but it, I think it should make us think. You know, in this story in Acts 15 of. Paul and Barnabas and others coming from Antioch to Jerusalem to discuss it, are we more naturally sitting with the uh, Gentile Christians? Or are we more naturally sitting with the uh, ones of Pharisee background and and, uh, listening to Peter and listening to James's, what I'm calling James's compromise, uh, with with those sorts of of years.
0: Well thank you everybody. Next week we're gonna fast forward to chapter seventeen and we'll follow the track of Paul.
2: Yeah, yeah, we're back to back to Paul. I know Acts 17, the, the sermon, the speech, is Paul on the Areopagus. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Thanks for coming, Logan. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.